From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Dr. Kakar, it is so nice to have you back on the show with us. It's always good to be here, <laughs> sitting in for my good friend, Dr. Tom Shives. May is Awareness Month for several diseases and conditions, including arthritis. Arthritis, the inflammation in one or more joints, can cause joint pain and stiffness, which usually worsen with age. We'll have the latest on diagnosing and managing arthritis. Also on the program, it's Osteoporosis Awareness Month. We'll learn who's at risk and have an update on treatment options. And yes, it's Lupus Awareness Month, too. And while there's no cure for lupus, treatments can help control symptoms. Our co-host, Dr. Tom Shies, will return and join me. We'll learn more about this chronic inflammatory disease. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, arthritis affects one in five adults in the U.S. and is a leading cause of disability among working-age adults. Arthritis, the inflammation in one or more joints, can cause joint pain and stiffness, which usually worsen with age. The most common types are osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. May is Arthritis Awareness Month, and here to talk about diagnosing arthritis and treatment options is Mayo Clinic Rheumatologist. Dr. John Davis. Welcome to the program, Dr. Davis. Uh, thank you. It's great to, to have be here. you here. Yes. I like it when we have these awareness months. One, it gives us something to talk about, but two, it helps us to maybe learn a little bit where we're at in the treatment of things like arthritis. Now, you mostly work with rheumatoid arthritis, correct? Correct. So what is the, I'm, I'm the layperson here, what's the difference between the two? Sure, you know, and this is a very important issue because arthritis is a, is a word that's used so often to mean so many different things. Um, when people say arthritis, they usually mean um, degenerative arthritis um, or wear and tear age-related type arthritis. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is really quite different, and the difference is that in rheumatoid, the issue is that the immune system is attacking one's joints, mm. whereas in, in um, degenerative arthritis, the issue is, again, overuse, wear and, tear. wear and tear, previous injuries, and maybe genetics that raise the risk of, of degeneration of joints. So those are the key differences, Tracy. As people are living longer, is arthritis a larger problem for the population? Arthritis is a huge problem. It's among the number one reasons why uh, people go to see their doctor, especially as we get older. Um, so we can expect that uh, as the population ages, uh, we're going to see more and more people you know, heading to the doctor with knee pain, um, hip pain, etc. And certainly uh, arthritis is an expensive condition. It leads to high rates of disability, loss of uh, ability to work, early retirement, uh, and uh, the treatments often are very expensive. Uh, joint replacement surgeries are, are fantastically helpful, but are expensive surgeries, and they contribute to, um, you know, the cost of care in the United States, certainly. Um, when we talk about rheumatoid arthritis, it also is a, a very important problem and probably getting more common with with the aging population. And it also is very expensive in, with uh, with the medications that we use nowadays to treat rheumatoid arthritis. They're, they're uh, very highly expensive, uh, although they do great things for patients. So it's important to detect it early and try to treat it effectively uh, to, um, you know, get good outcomes while, you know, uh, consuming the least amount of resources. Now, Tracy, back in the day, rheumatoid arthritis was very common. We would see a lot of it in the operating, in the uh, clinics. But now, Dr. Davis, the medical treatments are so great that that's really transformed the care of rheumatoid arthritis patients. Can you just comment a little bit about that, of where we've come, having mm -hmm. been in, in a pretty dark place? Right, yeah. Historically, and when I first started, even um, patients who had been treated in the 
um, 70s and 80s predominantly, you could see very bad destruction of joints. Um, but there really have been several things that have happened um, to our practice in rheumatology. One is that we diagnose patients much earlier, mm-hmm. and so we have newer blood tests that enable us to recognize it at an earlier state when it is basically much easier to treat and control. We also have better treatment strategies. We don't start with aspirin and then a year later try the mildest drug we have and then eventually four or five years into it get to the more potent drugs. We try to uh, treat them in a fairly assertive manner, getting on drugs that are effective quickly and then making changes, trying to strive for remission. We call that treat to target. Uh, and that approach, it's, it's analogous to treating high blood pressure. You know, we don't just start a drug and say you're fine. We measure the response. And then if it's not controlling it, we change the treatment. And so that approach of trying to strive for a target, which is really to completely eliminate inf- inflammation of the joints, is, um, is a big part of why we see much better outcomes nowadays. And then, of course, the availability of, uh, of much better treatments. And now we have what are called biologic therapies um, that um, target important inflammatory pathways uh, in joints. And when we use those, especially in combination with each other and with, with uh, old-fashioned drugs like methotrexate, we can get um, much better responses than we could you know, 10, 20 years ago. So you really shifted away from just using steroids, for example, to these more mm. biologic medications, correct? Absolutely. We, st- we still use uh, steroids to get a, a quick response, but we're increasingly trying to get away from using steroids like in it, such as prednisone uh, because of the high rates of uh, side effects mm-hmm. and, uh, and problems with them. What about, um, we said rheumatoid arthritis and just arthritis in general, but osteoarthritis? What is what is that? Right, so the term osteoarthritis, and so that's getting back to the idea of degenerative arthritis. Okay, all um, right. I don't always use the term osteo when talking about it because people don't often know what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we talk about um, degenerative arthritis or osteoarthritis are synonymous terms. Sometimes you'll also hear degenerative joint disease. So unfortunately, we always have a labeling problem when the word arthritis is always in there. But I think understanding that the concepts that on one hand, we have a degenerative type of arthritis, that's osteoarthritis. And on the other hand, we have uh, more of an autoimmune inflammatory type of arthritis where the immune system is attacking oneself. That's what autoimmune means. I realized I skipped one of the questions I was going to ask, and and that's maybe because I was assuming that the people who are most at risk for arthritis are elderly people, but maybe that's not the only group. I would assume maybe someone who is related to someone, you know, there might be a family impact. Sure. So I guess it, it kind of comes to, you know, who, who is at risk of, mm-hmm. of, um, of the different types of arthritis. And so I suppose we can talk first about uh, osteoarthritis, again, degenerative arthritis, and um, certainly aging is a huge factor, uh, previous injury to joints. Um, increased load or stress on joints, and so overweight or obesity are certainly risk factors for developing arthritis of the knee, for example. Um, Genetics, and so having a relative such as a parent or sibling um, or or grandparent even with a significant osteoarthritis of the knee or hip or other joints, that that, uh, signifies increased risk. Overuse of joints, and again, kind of that idea of um, just overdoing it can, can contribute to it. But so there's a variety of factors. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is quite a bit different, and, and you're right that, that rheumatoid arthritis uh, is not only age-related. And in fact, there are uh, forms of, of that d- disease that happen in children 
And so what is called juvenile um, idiopathic arthritis now used to be called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis can affect kids at very young ages. And there are many forms that are very similar to what uh, adults get. But um, so for rheumatoid arthritis, again, which is the auto- autoimmune or inflammatory form, we see that um, several things are risk factors. Again, aging is one. The most common age of onset is in the mid-50s. So, you know, one doesn't have to be 90. And in fact, we see people who are rather young who get it, but the prevalence does go up with age. Uh, it turns out that, that overweight and obesity is also a risk factor for rheumatoid arthritis. And we think that um, overweight may contribute to a lot of inflammation in the body, and that may help accelerate the process. And the family history for rheumatoid? Family history for rheumatoid is, okay. is a factor. It turns out that about half of the risk of getting rheumatoid arthritis is inherited, hmm. and yet uh, it takes a, many, a number of genes. And so the risk, for example, in, in a, of getting rheumatoid arthritis if your parent or sibling has rheumatoid arthritis is probably only about 4 to 7%. Smoking is an important risk factor, and so we can... For if, arthritis? For, for rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, for rheumatoid, right. Uh, for rheumatoid arthritis, and that seems to be involved in accelerating the inflammatory response to the huh. joints. So if we if we keep people from, from starting to smoke and, and try to maintain healthier weight in people, that would be expected to decrease, decrease the likelihood of getting rheumatoid arthritis. Now, Dr. Davis, we've talked a lot about the treatments for rheumatoid arthritis. Mm-hmm. What about for osteoarthritis? I'm, t- I'm thinking non-surgical here. You know, there's a lot of things you read, for example, glucosamine and chondroitin. Even in, in the pharmacy, you see these hot patches that are being advertised or cold patches. Right. Which one should one use and, and, and do they work? Good questions. I think that, uh, unfortunately, osteoarthritis, we, we, we certainly have good therapies and we have uh, opportunities to treat. We're still looking for that holy grail of a medication that will reverse or stop the, the degeneration process in the joints. People are working on that yet, but it's it's certainly uh, something for the future. I think right now, uh, a big part, I think, is, again, recognize it early. Uh, in any disease, you can expect that uh, understanding what's going on early can probably lead to better, better outcomes. We talk a lot about joint protection principles, and so the notion of... Um, if you're diagnosed with mild osteoarthritis or mild degenerative arthritis, then trying to avoid overuse of that joint and find other ways to accomplish tasks or activities is very important. And so if something, for example, bothers the thumb joint every time you do it, if you're opening jars, probably better to find a way to open the jar that doesn't lead to that pain. And so that's important. As far as managing pain, one thing that's happened recently is we used to say, and all the guidelines say, that acetaminophen or Tylenol is... Um, kind of the first-line analgesic. We still use Tylenol as very safe in many people, but we increasingly recognize, and many patients tell me this, that it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so often it isn't nearly as effective as we'd like. And so um, that's that's challenging. We do use uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain management, such as naproxen or a leave-over-the-counter ibuprofen, which is um, Motrin or, or Advil. And those medications can be more effective in, in some patients. The downsides are the risks, and we see significant increase risk of uh, stomach ulcers, for example, or high blood pressure. And so um, for these reasons, we have to be very careful about using those medications. And their uh, doctors have tools to try to prevent uh, medications to try to prevent uh, some of those problems with ulcers, for example. So it's always important for people to talk to their physicians about using long-term uh, over-the-counter pain relievers like uh, like uh, Advil or, or uh, Aleve. Can with I regard leave? to patches and things, okay. uh, I think that we don't have great uh, knowledge. I, I do think certain things like capsaicin cream, we, we some pe- people can uh, get benefit of that. There's a type of a gel that's by prescription called Voltaren gel that we do use topically, and it's it's like rubbing uh, a gel with um, ibuprofen on your joint. And uh, and that actually is probably safer with respect to the stomach and, and, and uh, systemic effects, and, and it can often be helpful for treating a localized uh, pain problem. 
We use a lot of that, uh, especially in the hand, because there's mm-hmm. not much uh, fat between the skin and the joint. Absolutely. So you mentioned thumb arthritis. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 50% of women aged over the age of 50 have thumb arthritis, so it's very common. We're talking about arthritis with Dr. John Davis. Dr. Davis is a rheumatologist at Mayo Clinic. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about treatment, maybe some preventative things, and the future for people diagnosed with arthritis. When we come back, myth or fact, people with rheumatoid arthritis are at higher risk for heart disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about arthritis during Arthritis Awareness Month with Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. John Davis. Well, Dr. Davis, myth or matter of fact, people with rheumatoid arthritis are at a higher risk for heart disease. Is that a myth or is that a fact? Tracy, that's a fact. People with, with rheumatoid arthritis do uh, have significantly increased risk of uh, heart disease. And um, the forms of heart disease can include uh, having a heart attack, developing heart failure, for example, needing to have procedures on the heart to restore circulation, like even um, uh, angioplasty or, or bypass surgeries. And so we do take that seriously, and we are increasingly trying to both, number one, control the, the rheumatoid arthritis inflammation. We believe that the systemic inflammation that, that uh, can basically take a toll on the arteries and lead to this higher risk. So if it's inflaming the joints, it can inflame the arteries, inflame the heart. I mean, all of it ends up getting kind of caught up in the same mix. That's the basic understanding and the model that we're uh, working working with, yes. Um, So very, very important for people to be aware of that uh, and to involve their doctor and and, and other specialists in making sure that they're addressing their risk factors for heart disease that are common, but also controlling the rheumatoid arthritis as well as possible. During the break, and I love it when this happens, when you bring two medical professionals together because you guys started talking about a common interest. Go right ahead. No, well, we're, well that's the beauty of working here with, <laughs> with such wonderful people. Dr. Davis had mentioned about osteoarthritis and the way I, a simple analogy that I, I take is if you imagine a joint as two china plates, they're smooth rubbing on each other mm-hmm. and suddenly you break one of them. No matter mm-hmm. how well you put it together, one surface is always a little bit rough mm-hmm. and it rubs away on the other surface and that can lead to osteoarthritis. So, for example, in wrist fractures, when you break your wrist, sometimes... Which is what, for our listeners don't know, that's what you're doing. You're sitting here in your scrubs, came over from surgery. <laughs> you work on orthopedic surgery. Yes, yes. <laughs> so for wrist fractures, when the, the joint is injured, uh, we can put the bones back together, but can we prevent the cartilage from uh, degrading? So uh, one of our colleagues, Dr. Christopher Evans, in physical medicine and rehabilitation, has actually come up with a, a novel idea, which is a prospective study that we're doing here at Mayo Clinic. The only place in the country whereby patients with a wrist fracture are having an injection at the time of surgery of either a saline uh, or a dummy control or a steroid injection, a one-off injection. We follow them up for two years to see are we preventing the cartilage from breaking down. And if we are, that's truly an exciting development in preventing osteoarthritis. And how does that, what does that mean to you? Well, I think that's very interesting. You know, so often we, uh, we hear concerns from patients and even some physicians that steroids may be harmful to joints Mm -hmm. and may lead to early joint deterioration, Mm -hmm. especially when we talk about injecting uh, steroids in, in a sore knee with osteoarthritis, for example. Can that be harmful if done too often? And there's always been that concern. So I think the idea of that actually the, Critical steroids may have benefits in, in protecting cartilage from arthritis is a very interesting idea. I'm very interested to see the results of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys will have to 
yeah. get together for coffee and yeah, talk absolutely. about that. We'll talk done. about that in two years. Time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were also talking about some of the maybe non-alternative, the altern- I should say alternative ways to treat mm-hmm. patients. And one of the ones we mentioned was acupuncture. Do people use acupuncture? Is people that- do use acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, you know, it, it agrees with some people and others. It doesn't seem like a, a great idea. But if it's if it's um, something that you think would be worth trying, uh, I, I think that it can help people. And we do see people who um, who have good control of pain. It helps control pain in the setting of many different types of pain, but uh, including pain from osteoarthritis. Yeah, not being able to open the pickle jar is one thing, but having pain, constant pain from it, that's what you want to manage. How else can patients manage that arthritic pain? Right, so we talked about medications. Mm-hmm. I think other alternative ways would be um, trying to take a, a mindfulness-based approach. And so uh-huh. we're learning a lot about um, different kind of approaches to use one's mind and so meditation. So meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, there also is a, a more formal technique called cognitive behavioral therapy. And so we, we have a, a pain pro- program of various types in which cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful. And that basically is working with uh, the mind to try to, to uh, essentially get control over the body and, and over over pain management. So, Dr. Davis, I have to ask you a question. This is a, a constant debate in our household. My parents have arthritis in their hands, and my mum takes glucosamine and chondroitin, and my dad does not. One says it works, one says it doesn't work. What's your thoughts about that? <laughs> Who's right? Is mom or his dad? It's so funny to have the, the family background on these things. So my father had developed uh, hip arthritis and, and, and also knee. And he also found it was very helpful to take glucosamine and chondroitin and, and, quite, and swore by it. Um, I also hear from our veterinarians um, who take care of their large animals. They use this, these things as well and find it to be useful in, in controlling pain or pain behaviors in their animals. So uh, it's, uh, on the other hand, my, my scientific hat, uh, and we're wearing my scientific hat rather, I, uh, I know that the trials that have been done for osteoarthritis have, have been largely negative uh, at try- being able to demonstrate scientifically a benefit on pain uh, control in osteoarthritis. And so I have this kind of twofold approach. Um, my pragmatic side is if it's, it, it's a very, um, low risk, it doesn't have any harm. And, and, um, if someone is struggling and we have so few options anyway to treat pain in osteoarthritis that, uh, I, I, uh, do not discourage and think it's reasonable to try glucosamine and chondroitin for a period of time, maybe giving it, um, a few months. And if it's not helping and probably stop and not invest the money at that point. So, both um, his parents are correct. So I'd say that uh, I, all of the above. <laughs> Everyone. <We're> all, <laughs> I think the part of the challenge is we may not fully understand how to stratify and mm-hmm. know which patients are going to benefit, which ones aren't. And so uh, I think I'd take a pragmatic approach to that. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Davis, for bringing us up to date on arthritis diagnosis and treatment during Arthritis Awareness Month. Dr. John Davis is a rheumatologist at Mayo Clinic. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll keep our awareness theme going as May is also Osteoporosis Awareness Month. We'll have the latest on treatment options. And believe it or not, May is also Lupus Awareness Month. We'll also learn more about this chronic inflammatory disease. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us at any time at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
The World Hypertension League has a campaign to build awareness about high blood pressure. The theme is Know Your Numbers. Here's Mayo Clinic nephrology and hypertension expert Dr. Ivan Porter. Cardiovascular disease is one of the uh, biggest uh, causes of death in the United States. And hypertension definitely causes cardiovascular disease. So high blood pressure is a, a cause of stroke. It's a cause of heart attacks. Uh, it can cause dementia. There are studies that show that. It can cause kidney failure or protein loss in the urine. So this long-term damage from these higher blood pressures in the circuit that we're talking about in our arteries uh, can wreak havoc. And the bad part is that we tend to not have symptoms until a lot of damage has been done. That's why they call hypertension the silent killer. Dr. Porter says everyone age 18 or older should have regular blood pressure checks, and if the numbers are high, they should take steps to lower them. Now, hypertension or high blood pressure is determined by the amount of blood your heart pumps and the amount of resistance to blood flow in your arteries. The more blood your heart pumps and the narrower your arteries, the higher your blood pressure. So where should those numbers be? The answers vary, but in general, your blood pressure is normal if it's below 120 over 80. You have pre-hypertension if your top number ranges from 120 to 139 or your lower number ranges from 80 to 89. You have hypertension or high blood pressure if your numbers are above 140 over 90. So talk to your health care provider about getting those numbers down. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. Osteoporosis, the condition that causes bones to become weak and brittle, is commonly associated with aging. But getting osteoporosis as you get older isn't inevitable. Medications, a healthy diet, and weight-bearing exercises can all help prevent osteoporosis, or at least reduce its effects if you have it. May is Osteoporosis Month, and here with an update on treating osteoporosis is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Robert Wormers. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wormers. It's good to see you again. Yep, good to see you too. Osteoporosis is big for both of you guys, actually. Dr. Kakar, isn't this what you spend half of your time or all of your time working with? We actually... um worked with uh, one of your partners, uh, Dr. Ann Kearns, and uh, we, di- we did a study looking at the high rate of osteoporosis in patients with distal radius fractures. I'm sure that's a lot of people that you see in your practice. Right. So osteoporosis is really has no symptoms until you break a bone. So in the, in what we determine, or we what's been defined as a fragility fracture, meaning an osteoporosis fracture, is when you fall from a standing height and break your wrist. So is a lot of osteoporosis located or discovered because of an unfortunate fall? Right. So fractures uh, often will come from falls, especially hip fractures and wrist fractures. Now, you can get spine fractures, which sometimes can be from a fall, but here in Olmstead County, uh, only one in three patients who breaks a bone in their back sees their doctor. So this is where you go to your family, you notice your aunt maybe is there, and you notice they're kind of getting curvature to the back, and maybe they're shrinking, and that aging process can also include fractures in the back and loss of height. So... Are there some patients, though, that don't realize they have osteoporosis until they are in the emergency room because they broke something? Or did they already know they had osteoporosis? Well, if you break a hip or a wrist, you may not think you have osteoporosis, but we think you have osteoporosis. Sometimes, you know, you'll say, well, you know, I slipped on the ice and I fell hard enough. But uh, typically, you, uh, there is, that is an indicator of fragility or weakness 
of the bones. And sometimes people can develop back fractures. They don't know why they're having back pain, and an x-ray is done, and they do have osteoporosis they didn't know about. So if I'm sitting there at home and I don't want to wait for a broken bone, uh, who, who's at risk for getting osteoporosis? Right. So there are definitely risk factors for osteoporosis. And in, in menopause, we know that you lose bone. In fact, women lose a dramatic amount of bone in the first three years around menopause. We call that transmenopause. So the year before your last period and the first two years after your period, you lose about 2% per year of your bone, which is a very rapid phase of bone loss. And uh, it varies from woman to woman, but that's kind of the average bone loss. And, and there's differences within ethnicity. So Asians and Caucasians lose more than African Americans and Hispanics for example. So, but there's not a whole lot, you know, menopause now, the question is, is whether you should go on hormones or not. And that's another discussion for another speaker and another topic. But there are other risk factors, especially uh, some high risk ones would be medications like prednisone or steroids, um, smoking, too much alcohol, typically more than two drinks a day, certain diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, Low body weight, one of the, nobody ever talks about having uh, the adverse effects of low body weight, but one of the effects uh, of low body weight can be a weakness of the bones. Certain things like bariatric surgery or weight loss surgeries can weaken bones. Family history is important, and we typically won't want to know did any of your family members break a hip because there are genetic predispositions to osteoporosis. Well, that's a big, long list. There's a lot of people that can be on that list that you just said. So what things can you do to help prevent getting osteoporosis? Right. So probably the most important things you can do are to lead a healthy lifestyle, just like your mother tells you and your your grandmother maybe, Mm -hmm. which is get enough calcium in your diet. So in a supplement or through the food? So... If you can't get it in your diet, then it is very reasonable to consider taking a supplement. So uh, it's really critical in younger individuals in those teen years where you're really getting most of your bone mass. Um, you really want to get closer to 1,300 milligrams a day. So you really want to push those dairy-containing um, foods. So typically three dairy servings a day is going to get you pretty close. In a postmenopausal woman, you want again, you're going to want to get 1,200 milligrams a day. And then the other thing is, is exercise. So weight-bearing exercise can be important. Um, strengthening exercises can be important. Um, avoiding too much alcohol, avoiding smoking. Um, and those would be some of the main things you can do. So when you say weight-bearing exercise, uh, does, is swimming considered an exercise that's good for the bones in terms of preventing osteoporosis? So swimming is good for health, but it wouldn't be necessarily the best one for preventing osteoporosis. And in fact, you know, I know you want to know this, but there was a study done at Stanford University where they looked at gymnasts versus swimmers. Now, gymnasts are low body weight, and I just told you low body weight's bad for bones, and swimmers usually are, you know, pretty muscular individuals. But what they found in this Stanford study is that the bone density actually was better in those gymnasts than the swimmers. And so it's that impact exercise that sure. seems to be important. Yeah, and they're jumping around. They land and they have to have strong bones. That makes right. sense. And the more you do that, the stronger they would get. Right. So can it be reversed once it begins if somebody starts, you know, maybe they didn't get enough calcium when they were a teenager or they're on the other side of menopause and already have started to lose some bone? Can you reverse that? Yeah, so this is kind of the sad truth. The sad truth is, is you get, you hit a peak bone mass at a young age and you're, you know, around 30, you're kind of peaked out. And from that point on, in general, you know, in that 30 year range, you start to lose bone gradually. And then it's accelerated around the time of menopause in women. Um, so it's hard to gain more bone, I hate to say, without 
certain maybe uh, without with the exception of some medications that might improve it but we don't treat young individuals there's certain minimize the loss is what you're trying to do what you can do is right minimize the loss but if you start out with a good amount of bone because you've done everything and you have good genetics then your risk is going to be lower than if you happen to have a genetic predisposition or you have insults to the bone that weaken them early on well it's nice to hear dr Wormer said i'm my peak bone mass but uh, <laughs> you, you meant- i'm not as happy over here i'm just gonna say <laughs> keep going you, you mentioned that uh, women are at high risk, especially uh, going through osteoporosis. What about men? Does this affect men? It does affect men. Um, men tend to have bigger bones, and we don't truly have a menopause. We have what's called an andropause. So we lose about 1% of our testosterone a year after you peak. So that's, the, again, it's around 30. And then you start to gradually lose testosterone now, uh, whereas women, they get that abrupt change at the time of menopause. So, But men do have osteoporosis. We do even recommend screening. Many national organizations recommend screening for osteoporosis in men, but not until 70 years of age, whereas in women, we're going to do it at a little bit younger age to screen for osteoporosis. How can you decide when uh, medication is needed or what medication would work best? So... There's a couple of ways to diagnose osteoporosis. One is, is you have a fracture or you pick up a fracture on an x-ray. The other one is if you do a bone mineral density test, which is a test where we can actually get an idea of how much mineral is in the bone. This is a very cheap test. I think it's like a $65 test, minimal radiation exposure. We recommend screening women at the time of menopause if they have risk factors for osteoporosis. At 65 years of age, if they don't have risk factors, 70 years of age in men is kind of the standing guideline. So if we do discover osteoporosis, then what we can do is decide using a calculator that you can find on the internet. It's called FRAX, F-R-A-X, and your listeners can Google FRAX, and they can even probably, you don't even need a bone density to calculate your fracture risk. This calculator can tell you over the next 10 years what your risk is of breaking a bone. And in uh, in the U.S., we believe that if you have a hip fracture risk of 3% or higher or a overall fracture risk in the next 10, next 10 years of 20% or higher, that you might be a candidate for medications. And so you mentioned uh, the age of when you have those tests. Is it a one-off test and you're done, or do you repeat this every every year or every five years? Yeah, that's it's a debatable, you know, whether to repeat it or not. I, so I'll tell you my view, but there may be others who give conflicting views. Uh, if you go to England, for example, they may say, don't ever do a bone density. Just do one, and that's it, because the value is low. Personally, what I often will do is it depends on that baseline bone density. So if you have... Uh, a lower bone density, I'm probably going to repeat it in two years. But if you have a very good bone density, I may wait five to ten years before I repeat another bone density. So it really depends on uh, the level of mineral that we see on that study. Thanks, Dr. Wormers, for updating us on the latest treatments for osteoporosis during Osteoporosis Awareness Month. Dr. Robert Wormers is an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, the word lupus, full name, systemic lupus erythematosus. You know, I suspect we all know someone who has lupus. Well, what is it? It's an inflammation, and it's a chronic one. It doesn't just come and then go. It stays with you. And it comes about when your body's immune system attacks its own tissues and organs. Another one of those what we call autoimmune diseases. Now, lupus can be difficult to diagnose because its signs and symptoms often mimic or similar or are similar to other diseases. And the early symptoms can be pretty subtle. Inflammation caused by lupus can affect many different body systems, including your joints, 
skin, mm. kidneys, blood cells, brain, heart, and lungs. That just about covers it all, it doesn't does. it? <laughs> May is Lupus Awareness Month, and here to talk more about a lupus diagnosis and treatment is Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. Vi Chowdhury. Welcome to the program. Good to see you again. Glad to be here. Hello, Dr. Chowdhury. So I think a lot of people wonder when you say you're a rheumatologist, what do you really do? I think that's a question most of my relatives ask all the time. <laughs> a rheumatologist, You're a what? <laughs> exactly. Uh, a rheumatologist is a specialist that commonly treats problems of immune system that involve joints, skin, or other organs. And one of the things that you treat, and I know it's one of your subspecialties, lupus. Tell us about lupus. So lupus is a chronic disease. It's an autoimmune condition which can involve virtually any organ, as Tracy was pointing. An autoimmune disease is a disease in which the immune system that normally helps us fight infection turns against itself and attacks various tissue. Lupus manifestations can be variable, and some people may have mild symptoms with just a skin rash or joint disease, and some people may have life-threatening disease with central nervous system or kidney failure, etc. Is Dr. Shives correct in the opening when he said you probably know someone with lupus disease? Is it that common? You know, I'm glad the awareness of lupus is increasing, but lupus is still a very rare disease. Um, in fact, in our own studies from Olmsted County, we found the incidence of about three per hundred thousand, but it does tend to affect certain racial groups more common than others. It is more commonly seen in African Americans, Hispanics, Southeast Asians, Chinese races, North hmm. uh, uh, Native Americans, etc. Now you mentioned a couple of the of the symptoms: a rash and uh, I think you said joint pain. Right? That's correct. Are, are there other symptoms of lupus? Virtually any organ can be involved by lupus. In fact, the common criteria that people um, know about uh, classifying lupus um, usually list about eleven symptoms or eleven organ involvements that can be seen: blood disorders, anemia, low count, low platelet counts problem with fluid around the lungs or heart, seizures, or even psychosis and kidney failure. All psychosis? Be, yes. Uh, Tell uh, us what that, word, what that means. So lupus can involve the nervous system as well, and it can cause many of the symptoms like stroke. It can even cause problems with function of memory or even seizures like convulsions. With all that whole laundry list, basically, that you just listed, I would imagine lupus has to be something that is not a doctor's first diagnosis. It must go quite a while before it's that is what we're looking at here is lupus. If you've watched the uh, TV show House, it was never lupus. But many times <laughs> lupus is the diagnosis that confuses everyone just because the symptoms can mimic so many diseases. But there are ways to diagnose lupus. I think every time you see a patient with multi-system disease, you have to think about lupus. And there is a test, a blood test called the anti-nuclear antibody or the ANA test that can help us in making the diagnosis. The challenge is that there are lots of people that have a positive ANA test but don't have lupus. So we do run some additional blood tests that will help us narrow down the diagnosis or decide if the organ involvement is from an autoimmune cause. It can be a challenge. Yeah, interesting. Uh, all those different symptoms, a thousand different ways that this disease can present. Do most of patients who have lupus, do most of them end up in the hands of a rheumatologist? That's true. Many of them, it's best to involve a rheumatologist just because the management can be challenging. Some of the drugs we use have powerful side effects and can involve, can suppress the immune system. But lupus can also present to different subspecialties. Some people may present to a nephrologist, a kidney doctor with renal failure. They may also go to a hematologist or a blood doctor with anemia 
low counts, etc. They may be first seen by a neurologist for the seizures and strokes we were talking about. So it's always a multi-specialty involvement when we are treating patients with diseases that affect so many organs. You talked about a rash, and isn't there a typical, the butterfly rash on the face, isn't that pretty typical of lupus, but doesn't necessarily mean you have lupus? That is true. Like Tracy was saying, there's a laundry list of rashes that can be seen, and patients with acute lupus or that pre- uh, can present with a classic butterfly rash with the redness over their cheeks, but they can also have uh, circular rashes all over their body. They can have rashes that can be more thick and, and can scar. And some people with lupus can have... Um, hair loss, and alopecia that can be permanent. So it can be a very cosmetically disfiguring disease. Isn't this a, a disease that also is somewhat variable in terms of symptoms? It, it can be better for a while and then it can get worse for a while. And if that is in fact true, what is it that tends to trigger this or t- to make this disease worse? That is true, Tom. Uh, it's a chronic disease and it can have periods of increased activity that we call as flares. Many times flares are because of certain triggers like infections. They can also be due to ultraviolet light. So many people will notice after a tropical vacation, mm-hmm. they come back with increased rash or even worse, joint pains, etc. Then there are some drugs that may trigger these, especially in people that are predisposed and um, uh, stress has been known to trigger, but I think the studies there are not so definitive. What are the treatment options? I would imagine, like we said, it takes a while before you get that first diagnosis, but then what can you offer to these patients? I think the treatment of lupus has come a long way. In the 1960s, uh, the diagnosis of lupus meant a very serious um, uh, issue that only 40% of people would um, uh, make it beyond three years just because of the severity of disease. Now, wait a minute. That many people would die of, if, of lupus? If, they, if you presented with kidney failure, there was no way. None of the drugs that we commonly use were available at that time. No kidding. And that was how long ago? In the 1960s. Wow. Not that long ago, Dr. Shah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was there. And, and now majority of people go on to uh, lead productive and long lives, thanks to some of these medicines. So the medicines we commonly use are, are uh, prednisone, which is a steroid, in different doses based on the severity of your disease. Other medicines that are used for treatment of malaria actually are very effective mm. for rashes or joint symptoms from lupus. But these anti-malarials also work on modulating the immune system. So it's not the anti-infective activity. And if there are very serious disease manifestations, we use strong medicines that suppress immune system, medicines like cyclophosphamide, mycophenolate, azathioprine, methotrexate, etc. And is it a big deal to have a, an awareness day or an awareness month for lupus? I mean, it, I'm sure it's still, it doesn't hurt for more people to know about it. I think so, just because the disease can be so severe. But what is hard is a lot of patients with lupus have fatigue and joint pains, and they look healthy. So people around them don't know what they, how much they are suffering. So just to know about this disease and, and a silent epidemic sometimes, as it can be, uh, it's always good to know more. Is there a genetic risk or link? Yes, there is. We don't exactly know what causes lupus, but we know that certain genes, mm-hmm. and um, many of these genes are in the immune system pathways um, that predispose them to developing lupus. There are some other environmental factors that we don't know much, but smoking, 
silica exposure, etc. Really? Silica mining uh-huh. um, and uh, certain kinds of drugs. What research, what direction, is there any lupus research that is giving hope for these patients? I think lupus research is in a very exciting field. There are lots of investigators, including some investigators at Mayo, that are looking at the genetic signatures or genes that are predisposing people to developing lupus. We ourselves are looking at horm- role of hormones in lupus and some other epidemiologic studies on skin lupus as well as systemic lupus. So systemic lupus erythematosus, it's uh, a fairly uncommon disease you mentioned. It can present in a myriad of different ways. It's up to you, uh, a specialist, to figure out exactly what the diagnosis is. And thankfully, it sounds like you've got some pretty good treatment these days for people with lupus. That's true. Dr. Vai Chowdhury, rheumatologist and lupus specialist, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.